live from beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Republican attorney Josh Cantro, Benjamin Rabb from the UCLA Middle Eastern Studies Department, Chris Bury, veteran correspondent now with DePaul University, and in our second hour, Spike Cohen of the Libertarian Party, Eric Cohen of the Acton Institute, and Peter Qualia, who has been with us. Uh, he is a Trump Republican, and he will join us in hour number two. Phone lines open for the full two hours this evening, 1-800-723-8029. We have lots of guests. There's nobody in studio with me. I'm all alone at the WYND studios. But again, we have full board of people coming in from around the country. And uh, we're going to begin by talking about what is happening, obviously, in the Middle East. And I want to begin with uh, 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 Professor Rad from the UCLA. He teaches in their Middle Eastern Development Department. He's an Iranian, and, and he joins us tonight from his home in California. California. And Professor, nice to have you with us this evening. Uh, we're also going to hear from Josh Cantro and Chris Bury in this hour as well. But I want to begin with you. Within the, um, within the Arab world, how popular is Hamas? That is a complicated question. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me on. Good. It's complicated by the fact that we can't get an accurate gauge of public opinion necessarily. But also Hamas has been one of the more successful, and, and, and I say that with quotes, uh, groups challenging Israel and Israeli occupation in the Arab world. Now, it's their means and what they want that can be disputed and disagreed upon. But the fact that they have achieved success from their perspective has garnered them a lot of followers and people who um, support their push to liberation. Now, what you're going to see differences will be where how they do it, their tactics, their means and their long-term goals, which is not aligned with most of what the Palestinian population wants. How does Hamas compare with Hezbollah? Hamas is a Sunni Islamic uh, group. They are calling for a Islamic state in all of Palestine, which means at the exclusion of Israel, their charter explicitly calls for the elimination of all Jews in what is Israel today in the Middle East. Hezbollah, on the other hand, is a offshoot of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard and is a proxy militia group that has now become a political party in Lebanon. They are Shia Muslim, so they are of a different sect. Um, nevertheless, they share the same goal with Hamas in that they both are backed by Iran and have Israel as their primary enemy. Mm -hmm. Josh Cantrell joins us. Josh, your question to you is uh, you're, you're very active in the Jewish community here in Chicago, frequent guest on this program for many, many years. Uh, Within the the Jewish friendship and community that you have, that you've spoken with in the last 10 days, uh, is there a fear that Israel uh, might overreact by being too aggressive in the Gaza Strip? And if so, uh, what do they think the concerns should be? Bruce, I have uh, friends across the political spectrum in the Jewish world and, and elsewhere. I have folks that are on the pretty far left um and i can tell you that there is uniformity of view right now among everyone across the spectrum that hamas has got to be destroyed um that this plague that has been set upon the middle east 
that everybody would be better off without Hamas. And at that point, you could then have perhaps constructive negotiations going on. So I haven't heard anybody in my friend group that doesn't think that this group and after what they did, torturing, raping, murdering, going after 20 communities, invading 20 communities, 1,300 Israeli dead, which to 40,000 U.S. dead proportionally, that anything other than the eradication of Hamas and whatever it takes to do that is the right move. I want to go back to Professor Rad for a moment, and my question to you is, hearing that, Professor, uh, what would be the reaction of those within the Arab world that are more moderate and are not supportive necessarily of Hamas? Uh, is it likely to radicalize them when they hear this rhetoric, uh, at least coming from uh, someone from the, the Jewish community in Chicago? I think the, the I think what's going to radicalize them more than anything is going to be not so much that Hamas needs to be removed. There are many Palestinians, in fact, who would love to see Hamas not be the dominant political or military force among them. What's going to radicalize them from their perspective is going to be civilian casualties inflicted upon the people of Gaza as a result of Israel's incursion and defensive maneuvers against Hamas. That, more than anything, will be what radicalizes them. Uh, Chris uh, Beery joins us for many years, a correspondent on ABC, uh, working with uh, Ted Koppel on Nightline uh, for many years, now a professor of journalism at DePaul University in Chicago. Chris, you, you have covered this story for most of your adult life. Uh, what makes the coverage of this story maybe different now than in the past? What makes it different is that this is the most barbaric attack against the Jewish people since the Holocaust. And I think Americans can understand that Israel needs to defend itself after uh, this absolutely barbaric attack that killed more than a thousand Israelis and a significant number of Americans. And we know that there are many um, hostages uh, being held. Um, this is a, a direct attack, um, not dissimilar from the 9-11 attack on the United States. So uh, I've covered uh, you know, these conflicts before, a considerable time um, in Israel in the 1990s for various attacks in the second intifada, I was in Ramallah when uh, Arafat's compound was raided. I covered, uh, you know, t mm. terrific fighting in Hebron. But this is, um, this stands alone um, as a historic, uh, historic infamy uh, in Israel. In and the, um, in I the think that from, 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 our, from our, our perspective, I think that this is a, it's a, it's a huge story, the biggest one in the Middle East in many years. In the, in, in, in the rhetoric uh, that has been used, uh, it has frequently been stated, they talked about the beheading of babies. As I recall, the first time I ever heard that term was out of the mouth of an Israeli soldier, and the news media seems to have picked up that particular point, the beheading of babies. Now, when you hear that, that's you, you, you can't help but become vehemently, uh, you know, 
disgusted by such a context. So what I want to hear when we come back, we do have to break here in just a moment, but what I want to hear from everybody is the use of the rhetoric that is being used and the way that the world media, at least the United States media, let me focus on that. I want to just focus on the U.S., not just on the world media, but the way in which the the world U.S. media is reacting to that use of that term and other things about being women, being raped and everything else, these horror stories and words, very inflammatory words that we're, that we're hearing, I want to find out from all of our guests how accurate those words are. And again, uh, is, is the intention by using those words, is it to inflame not only uh, the sides in the Middle East, but to inflame people in the United States? I'm Bruce Dumont, back shortly when we continue. Bruce, I want back, and uh, Josh, you had your hand up and wanted to weigh in on something. Uh, go ahead. Yes, um, I, I wanted to say, in, in reference to Chris's comment about comparing this to Israel September 11th, I've heard that a lot, and there are some comparisons, but it really doesn't, doesn't hold if you look at it. Um, September 11th was terrible. Savage terrorists were involved, but there were no hostages taken on September 11th. There were no shootings. There were no children killed in front of their parents. There were no homes invaded. There was no one pulled from their cars and beheaded. There were no rapes. There was no torture. There was no grandmothers dragged across borders. Sadly, the better comparison here is the Holocaust, where all of these things like every day in the Holocaust. And um, I believe that uh, I, I want to go. I want to. I want to go back to one thing that you just said because you you used the phrase that I asked the question about before the break. You said beheaded. How mm-hmm. do you know absolutely positively that babies were beheaded? Now again, it's horrible. If a baby is dead, a baby is dead. But my question is, when you talk about beheading babies, that ratchets up uh, the emotional response. And I'm just wondering whether, what, what evidence, let me ask the professor. Professor, is there any evidence that babies have actually been beheaded? Or is this just a phrase picked up and used by the, the, the world media? My understanding is that U.S. intelligence sources have been given access to photographs taken by the Israeli um, agency, Zaka, okay. that's responsible for handling um, the dead bodies after tragedies and that they have seen it, but that I haven't seen anything released, but that doesn't mean that it's not there. just means we can't verify it. Chris Beery, I want to give you a follow-up uh, last point on this, and then I want to go back to some other issues. Uh, on, the, on the use of emotional terms uh, picked up as, as gospel. Well, there's no question some terms can inflame. Uh, I first saw the report about the beheadings of infants from a French news agency reporter. Um, it turns out that, you know, we don't know if that exact uh, characterization has been confirmed. But uh, in the New York Times today, their reporter um, went into a morgue and saw the bodies of murdered 
babies. So whether they were beheaded or whether they were stabbed or burned or shot, uh, these are, there's no question that it's verifiable fact that infants uh, were slaughtered, uh, you know, a week ago yesterday. Mm. So, you know, we can dance around on the head of the pin about right. that term beheadings, but I think the larger point is that this was a, a homicidal it did slaughter. Happen. It did happen. Uh, Benjamin, I want to go back to you because uh, early on the, there has been rhetoric and, and speculation that Iran was behind it. The Wall Street Journal has come out and basically said that Iran has been behind all this. The administration has sort of pulled their punch. They have not gone that far to suggest that any evidence suggests that it goes back to Iran, although they think it does. So my question to you is, you're an Iranian, and, and my question to you from a historical perspective, what is it that Iran would like out of this moment? The Iranian Revolution of 79 rests on three pillars. One of those pillars is the destruction of the State of Israel. Therefore, Iran's current government is ideologically committed, existentially I'd even say, to re meeting, meeting that objective. So long as Israel exists, it is standing in opposition to Iran's, one of Iran's three main pillars of the revolution, something that Khomeini, the founder of the revolution, wanted. So it, it, that's basically one of its missions. If it were to have a mission statement in its constitution, um, that would be it. And, I, and, and it's rhetoric that the Supreme Leader uses quite often. So absolutely, it has every incentive to do so. Otherwise, it loses legitimacy and credibility in the Muslim world. Do you believe that war with Iran and the United States is inevitable, Professor? Um, I don't know if we're going to have a direct kinetic war. We've been fighting proxy wars with Iran, and I think that is going to continue. One thing that Iran's regime is not, is not suicidal when it sees that it is literally going to be threatened with destruction is when it tends to back off, but it has no hesitation using proxy groups in the region to conduct and fight its wars. And those are the wars we have been fighting, and I foresee we will continue to fight, which includes, by the way, cyber warfare and things of that nature. Josh, you have been critical of Iran uh, in your many appearances on this program. Uh, uh, do you believe that war with Iran is inevitable or should be inevitable? I, I don't agree that it's inevitable, and I agree with the professor's comment about um, the proxy war that has been going on for 40 years just continuing, and I think it will just escalate in the cyber realm and and maybe special operations inside Iran. Look, Israel's Mossad has been conducting special operations in Iran for decades now. That will be stepped up, that will continue. There may be some limited strikes on Iranian positions outside of Iran, perhaps in Syria. Um, but I, I do not believe it's inevitable, and I certainly hope not. We have, we have been reading in the West about uh, the, the, the power and the strength and the intelligence, no pun intended, of the Mossad. And, and in this particular case, there appears to be a, a, a mistake or an overreaction or an underreaction to what happened here. So how badly do you think the image of the Mossad is at this moment, Chris Bury, uh, in the wake of uh, obviously an intelligence failure? Chris, are you there? Have you turned your mute? Have you muted muted yourself? 
Well, he's uh, we missed that. So, Mike, l- let me let me take that question and, and go back uh, to you, uh, Professor uh, 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 Chris. Did you hear the question? Uh, we're not getting a. Uh, we're not hearing the. Let me go back to Professor uh, Rad. Uh, can you respond to that question, Professor Musad? I mean, I think, how badly yeah, was this a mistake? I, I, I think it, it absolutely it's it's one of its biggest mistakes, if not the biggest mistakes. The Israeli people rely on their government really for above all anything else is, is security. They pay a lot of taxes and in return an agreement by the state to keep them safe and secure, which involves spending hundreds of millions, if not billions, on sophisticated security measures, um, surveillance techniques, the best in the world. And in this case, the government and the intelligence agencies let them down. This is, and I want to stress this, this is as big of a failure of imagination as it is a failure of intelligence. It's not so much that they didn't read the intelligence or catch it, they simply did not put the pieces together, similar to U.S. intelligence agencies in the run-up to 9-11, that they simply could not see what this was going to be. In hindsight, I think more of that is coming to the surface, but absolutely an intelligence failure as well as an um, imagination one. Josh Cantrell, your response to And I would say... Yeah, I, I would say I, I agree with that. And I can tell you from my friends and family in Israel, what I'm hearing r- repeatedly is now is not the time to talk about, you know, what happened and what happens politically to this government. But certainly we can talk about it. And it's been mm-hmm. a huge question on my mind. Like, how did this happen? Israel's security is like the best in the world. And the U.S. relies on Israel's security, and so many other countries rely on Israeli intelligence. How did this happen? There will certainly be a commission once this war is over formed to figure that out, because it is just crucial that this kind of stuff cannot happen again. Uh, Bibi Um, Bibi Netanyahu has said, uh, Josh, he has said, is talking about the destruction of Hamas. from your again, your friends and neighbors that that may be living in Israel, do do they want to see the Gaza Strip absolutely demolished, or do they no. understand that if there's a if there's a reaction, a perceived overreaction by the world, some of the world's support for Israel uh, may fade uh, and be and be viewed as just uh, a brutal over exercise of uh, of power by Israel. They, they, they all get that. Nobody wants to see Palestinian, innocent Palestinians killed in the Gaza Strip. What they want to see is Hamas rooted out and what they understand across the political spectrum in Israel. And I'm telling you, across even the far left is that Hamas has got to be rooted out and that there will be civilian casualties as a result of that because Hamas uses its civilians as human shields in some cases. And that's just the sad reality of it. But nobody wants to see, Israel wants a partner for peace. And when Hamas is rooted out and Gaza is hopefully rebuilt without Hamas there, there will be a time and place for that. Keep in mind though, that Israel has not had a presence in Gaza since 2005 when they pulled out. So, you know, Hamas was elected, unfortunately, by the residents of Gaza. How how likely is that to happen? Where you might have members of of uh, uh, Palestinians who will really turn on Hamas in an effort to find a more peaceful day, 
uh, for for their future, Professor. Is that is that is that just uh, wishful thinking? The reason I don't think it's wishful thinking is we look to Iran, a great example. It is the country that is the most anti-Israel and anti-West in its government, but yet its population is most pro-Israel and pro-West. The Iranian people at uh, uh, sporting events, at public demonstrations, have actually called on their government to end its support for Hamas and Palestinian causes as a whole because it has brought everyone unneeded suffering. So if we can win the hearts and minds of the Iranian people, which I think the West has done, then I don't see it as far-fetched for that to happen within the Palestinian population. A lot of it, though, hinges on proper messaging and making sure that Hamas's propaganda does not get in the way. Professor Rod, uh, I thank you very much for joining us this evening. You can only be with us for this 30 minutes because you're going off to a memorial service. But again, I hope we can have you back in the future. We've added a great deal to our discussion. We will continue with Chris Fury and also with Josh Cantro as Beyond the Beltway continues. 1-800-723-8289. Schumann back and uh, we continue. Hopefully we have uh, reconnected with uh, Chris Bury and uh, uh, I want to begin by uh, giving you an opportunity to sort of uh, uh, elaborate, if you will, uh, Chris, when when you're working on a story this large, how how did you and how do, how are you teaching your students to deal with the variety of, uh, of propaganda that might be coming uh, before you? How do you deal with that? Um, we're not getting them. Uh, have you got your mute on, uh, Chris? Well, we're 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 missing that. I, I want to go back to uh, to to Josh. Uh, it looks like we've lost our communication with with the Chris Bury tonight. So we're going to say uh, farewell to him and thank you very much for joining us. But even though we had a serious uh, problem with our communication, let's go to David Hello? in San Francisco, uh, who joins us tonight. Go ahead, David. You're on the air. Bruce, uh, I uh, just posted a hear me? piece on yep. your YouTube version uh, of the show. Uh, apparently, there's a United Nations co uh, conference on trade and uh, what was it? Uh, there, there was a UN conference on trade mm -hmm. that uh, determined that there's a massive amount of uh, fracking offshore of Gaza and oil underneath Gaza. So what's the old expression, never underestimate the opportunity for a disaster to turn into uh, uh, opportunity. And um, so I expect that the uh, desire to chase a million people off that land, blow it to bits so nobody can come back. Yeah, go ahead. Are you there? Yeah, we are. Go ahead. Oh, I see. You're finally getting your other people back. Good. Yeah, just this, um, when you realize that Gaza was the most awful land that Israel could uh, could find to slam people into, this is 20, 30, 40 years ago, it was godforsaken land that, just like the American Indians were slammed into the worst land, uh, the uh, refugees that were slammed into Gaza, that's the the lousiest land they could find, well, then all of a sudden oil is discovered underneath it. 
So I think that uh, an ugly aspect of what's going on there is to drive people out of Gaza now so that Israel can get the hundreds of billions of dollars worth of oil underneath Gaza. Right, let's let uh, Josh respond First, to can that. I respond? Go ahead. That, that was just a, a bunch of conspiracy garbage. Israel no, didn't change let, let's, let, let's, let, let's Israel, let Josh respond. Israel at one point was, I'm sorry, Gaza at one point was controlled by Egypt. Egypt could certainly take back control. Israel hasn't been in Gaza for 18 years. And uh, in any event, Israel is not after Gazan oil. I'm not even sure that's true. But even if it were, Israel has discovered so much oil off its coast in the Haifa area and in the northwestern, off the northwestern part of the country. It doesn't need oil. It's got plenty of, of its own capacity to do that. Okay. So, you know, if um, the Gazans want peace with Israel, they can help Israel get rid of Hamas and everybody can uh, live in a much, much greater situation than exists now. David, thanks very much for your call. I want to go on with, with, with Josh. Josh, uh, what is the what is going to be the answer here? Look into your crystal ball. Let's look, look six months, six years, you know, 60 years down the road. What's going to happen here? I mean, people have been asking that question for decades. Yeah, for, I mean, I've been asking I, it for I, 40 years, so go ahead. Yeah, I, I think that this could um, be a real game changer in that Hamas could, is not going to be popular after this operation concludes. And I think that most Gazans will rightly blame Hamas for every single civilian casualty that comes out of this, out of the Israeli response to protect its citizens. And my, my hope is that there is some arrangement that's made with Egypt to administer the Gaza Strip um, that will be Hamas-free when Israel issues its operation or perhaps the Palestinian Authority itself. And um, and that, that to me, seems like the most likely resolution that comes out of this. There's going to be enormous world pressure to um, end this thing uh, prematurely on Israel. And I think that there is re huge resolve in Israel right now to do the necessary to finally get rid of Hamas not go back to what happened three years ago or five years ago or seven years ago when there were flare-ups in the past and the U.S. put pressure on Israel. To do other, I don't do, think that's going to happen. Do other countries in the region have to give up land to find a place where the Palestinians can go? If they're not going to be in the Gaza Strip, they need to be someplace. Are there, are there countries in the Middle East that would give up portions of their land and say, okay, this is the new Palestine? No, and they don't need to because, look, keep in mind that Muslim countries, Arab countries control 99% of the Middle East. Israel is this tiny sliver that is the si a little bit smaller than the state of New Jersey. That is Israel. So, you know, Gaza could be incorporated into Egypt. And the West Bank parts that are under Palestinian control could be incorporated into some kind of confederation with Jordan, which already is majority Palestinian right now. 
and the parts that Israel controls in the West Bank could be incorporated into Israel. Mm -hmm. There is a grand solution here. Bill Clinton proposed it 25 years ago toward the end of his term at Camp David. Israel said yes. Uh, Yasser Arafat said no. Israel is ready to do something, but right now it doesn't have a partner, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Uh, we should mention, by the way, that uh, because of the technical issue with uh, uh, Chris Bury, and again, uh, Professor Rad was only available for a uh, half an hour, uh, we're going to reach out as we go to the next break. We're going to reach out and we're going to join uh, by, uh, by Spike uh, Cohen, who was the vice presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party, because we want to find out what the Libertarians are saying about this. And I want to go back to uh, Josh and, and ask the question. Um, what role should the United States play right now in trying to help Israel to one extent? Or do you believe that the powers that be in Washington are basically saying to Bibi Netanyahu, hold it? We, we don't we, we don't want to unleash the wrath of the Israeli people and the Israeli army against uh, Gaza right now. That it's not in it's not in your best interest, and it is in our best interest. Do you think those conversations are taking place, and should they or should they not take place? Well, look, the president and I, as you know, because I'm a frequent guest on this show, I'm not a huge fan of President Biden. Right. But he his speech three days ago was incredible. It was incredible. Not only the words he said, but the way he said that yes. he delivered that speech with as much passion as as he possibly could. And I was incredibly moved by the speech. And right now, the U.S. Defense Secretary Austin was in Israel a few days ago saying the same thing. The U.S. is firmly behind Israel. And what Israel is doing, I mean, you mentioned unleash the wrath against Gaza. That's not what Israel is doing. Israel knows that it has to be careful in what it does. But, it ha but it's in order to help the region and help the Palestinians solve their own problem, Israel has got to root out Hamas, and it's got to get rid of Hamas, and it's got to do things in order to do that. And I think that as long as that mission is understood and underscored, and Israel goes about that, the mission in a way that it's not against the Palestinian civilians, the Gazans, the ordinary people there, but against Hamas, it's going to be just fine with this. But it's, go but it's going to take a house-to-house -house search, don't you think? So the the, uh, the 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 life in the in the Gaza Strip is going to be significantly disrupted as Israeli soldiers go house to house searching for Hamas or their sympathizers. Yes, it, it will be disrupted. There's no question that it will be disrupted, but the end result of it will be a better Gaza and will be a better situation in my view. Now look, it pains me. Israel has already lost the equivalent of 40,000 U.S. lives, 1,300. The casualties among the IDF are climbing. I believe the Israel Defense Forces is approaching 300 casualties at this point. So it pains me to think about how many young 18 to 21-year-old Israelis are going to lose their life going to house to house. This is not something Israel wants. If there's a better way to go than house to house, Israel, I, I would imagine, is all for it. And I would be all for it. And any supporter of Israel would be in favor of that. I just are you worried Are you worried about the loss of Palestinian lives? 
Absolutely, I am. I am sickened by the Palestinian, the innocent Palestinian lives that are lost in this. And I, I, I it is, it is terrible. But you know, again, every Palestinian life that is lost is attributable to Hamas, this group that is decided to. I don't know what Hamas expected would come out of this um, invasion and this murder and rape and torture and mutilation and everything that they did. Mm -hmm. What what did they expect that Israel would just say, oh, well, that's a shame. Let's bury our dead and move on. Well, they're hoping they're, they're hoping I think they're hoping for an Israeli overreaction to this. And the question is. Who's going to define what an overreaction is when you have the, the you know, politics of Israel involved and the politics of the world? Uh, stand by, Josh, when we continue. Uh, we're going to be joined by a libertarian vice presidential candidate from four years ago, uh, Spike Cohen, and we'll also have other guests as we roll on. We're not done yet. I'm Bruce Dumont. Don't go away. Who is this? Bruce Dumont back, and uh, we're having a few uh, technical issues this evening, but uh, we'll be on with the show in just a second. After I mentioned that uh, uh, Professor Rad, who was with us for the last segment, was with the UCLA uh, uh, Center for International Studies. It's a relatively new program out there, and he joins us uh, representing UCLA. Um, representing now, not necessarily the Libertarian Party, but his own views, we welcome uh, uh, Spike. Uh, Spike, nice to have you with us. Uh, Spike, you are the you were the Democratic nominee for vice president on the Libertarian Party. No, I was the I was the Libertarian nominee for vice president. What did I say? Democratic. Oh no no you were not the Democratic nominee. <laughs> no no hell not. hell no. Spike <laughs> Spike Cohen is hell our no. guest. He is a Libertarian. Um, you first of all, I'm going to ask a political question because last week on this program uh, we had the, the the chairman of the National Libertarian Party on the air, and uh, she was mentioning that people are lining up to run for president uh, on the ticket this year. Are you considering a running for president this year? I haven't ruled it out. Uh, the coming weeks will determine that. I have a lot of uh, questions that need to be answered before that. But the bottom line is, I know whoever we nominate is going to be a far cry better than uh, what we're being offered from the so-called major parties. Spike, at this moment, I'm asking for your opinion, not necessarily that of the party. What is your opinion about what has transpired between the Israelis and those living in Gaza and the Hamas? What do we I do think next? it's absolutely horrific. I think that the all agree um, on that. I think that the loss of life, yeah, absolutely, the loss of life is absolutely horrific, both on the Israeli side and the Palestinian side. When you say what should we do next, yeah. uh, I think we need to look to the constitutional question of that. The U.S. government and the U.S. military, by extension, they have one role, and that is to protect and defend the Constitution and the American people. And the people who founded this government and wrote that Constitution warned us time and again against getting involved in entangling alliances 
alliances. And for good reason. We have at this point over a century of history to show what happens when we consistently get involved in things that have nothing to do with us directly. Uh, we should not be getting involved with foreign aid or military aid. We certainly should not be putting boots on the ground or bombs on the ground or anything else. Uh, if we have any role at all, it should be to try to negotiate some kind of peace uh, deal between the various parties involved. The more involved we are, the worse it's going to get. If and the we, entire history of U.S. intervention in the Middle East is proof of that. If you say getting in, involved, I mean, by by negotiating or getting involved in negotiations, is that not that's that's getting involved, which is something you say the Constitution, the founding fathers didn't want us to do. It isn't just a matter of sending troops to to direct alliances. They didn't want us to get into direct alliances, but getting in, being a, a, as impartial and po- as possible of a negotiating uh, factor could certainly help. But I, I'm also okay with us just saying this is not our, our, our issue, and the people in the region are going to have to figure this out, not just Israel and Palestine, but also Egypt and Jordan and, and, and Syria and every other surrounding country. They're going to have to figure this out. I'd be fine with that as well. But if we're going to have any role at all, it should be to try to negotiate peace. Josh Cantrell, your reaction to that? that there should be a hands-off policy on the part of the United States. Would that work? No, it, it wouldn't work. And Israel is too valuable of an ally to the U.S. and too valuable to the U.S. in numerous aspects of life and intelligence and, and the like. Can't to, they do it on uh, their own? Josh, couldn't of, they do it on their own? Yes, but I, I, I'm going to partially agree with that. I mean, Israel does not want U.S. troops on the ground. They don't want a single troop. And a complicating factor here is there are about 25 to 30 American hostages being held in Gaza right now. So, you know, the the last thing that Israel wants is for a single U.S. troop to die because that would undermine U.S. support for Israel, which is off the charts right now. So, no, Israel doesn't want that. It just wants support. And it's getting that from the, this administration in terms of the moral support, in terms of President Biden's statements, and in terms of letting Israel do what it needs to do to root out Hamas. And at the appropriate time, I hope that the U.S., as it always has done, can help facilitate some sort of, I don't think we're going to see a peace agreement in our lifetime, but some sort of armistice, some of uh, standing down of hostility. If, and, if, and so by I, the way, if, if Hezbollah decides that they want to get involved or Iran suggests or tells them to get involved, now that's going to open up a, a second war front. And my question to you is, is Israel capable of working and fighting Hezbollah and Hamas at the same time without some kind of United States military action? Or diversion. Yes, they are capable of it. What Israel needs, and it worries me greatly about the Northern Front, greatly. And I will say this, Israel does not need U.S. troops. It doesn't need anything to help fight that. It's going to need more Iron Dome batteries because the system is already getting overwhelmed. While it's catching like 90% of what's coming from Gaza, keeping in mind that 5,000 rockets, as of yesterday, had been fired from Gaza into Israel. What the capabilities of Hezbollah in their rockets, which are much more precise and much more overwhelming, 
could overwhelm even the Iron Dome system. So if the Iron Dome system can catch 80% of the Hezbollah rockets, that's still 20% getting through. Okay. That's a lot of damage and destruction and death. As a, as a libertarian, uh, Spike, uh, the, the, the need for protection from the Iron Dome, since we helped create it, uh, does it does it not make it mandatory that we become a supplier of of sort of the the, the, the new requirements that are needed, or would you stand off from no, that? No, absolutely well? not. I, I, the, the U.S. taxpayer has been on the hook for roughly three billion dollars every single year in military aid to Israel for the past several decades. And if at this point Israel is in a position where it still needs aid from us, then that's an that's a a, a never-ending money trap for American taxpayers who right now are struggling to be able to afford groceries. And at a time when the United States government is thirty-three trillion, might be thirty-four at this point trillion dollars in debt and counting. And, and so when we're looking at these types of things, there's absolutely no reason that we should be continuing to fund a foreign military for the for the past several decades. Uh, and it, that's in, in no interest to the United States Constitution or okay. the American people. Spike, we've got to pause. That's Spike Cohn. He uh, was the vice presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party. And uh, Josh Cantrell continues with us in the next hour. We'll be joined by other guests who will join Spike and Josh. Don't go away. Phone lines open. 1-800-723-8289. Welcome back. We continue with hour number two of Beyond the Beltway and uh, joining uh, Josh Cantrell, who joins us uh, here this evening in our first hour, and also Spike Cohen, who has joined us. He is with the Libertarian Party. Joining us for uh, this uh, hour of our show, we welcome Eric Cohn, who frequently sits in when I am away, uh, joins us from the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And Peter Qualia joins us. Uh, uh, he is a pro-Trump Republican, spent 30-plus uh, years in the federal uh, law enforcement agencies. And again, uh, they all join us, uh, and I want to begin by getting uh, their take on what we've discussed in hour number one, and that is, uh, to you first, uh, uh, Eric Cohn, um, what do you think the United States' role should be? I mean, Spike Cohen was saying that we should have a total hands-off, shouldn't become involved at all. Uh, you're somewhat of a libertarian as well, but how do you feel uh, we should be acting in the wake of what transpired in Gaza and between Israel and Gaza. I agree with Spike to a certain extent. I certainly have no <clears throat> desire to see American uh, boots on the ground uh, fighting in that conflict, but that's not something that seems to be on the table. I haven't seen anybody really even seriously no. suggesting that. Uh, I think the idea that the United States should support its allies and Israel is an important ally uh, should continue. I'm less bothered than Spike is by uh, providing uh, military and other aid to uh, to Israel, so I don't particularly have a problem with that. Um, this is a, an existential struggle for uh, this uh, state of Israel's existence. So I, I think in circumstances like that, uh, I think the moral leadership of the United States and the world, which has been a moral leader, and we want, I would like it to continue to be a moral leader as it has been in the post-World War II environment, I think necessitates uh, support for the state of Israel and also for the Palestinian people there to be clearly distinguished from Hamas, which is a terrorist organization. 
um, we should distinction, uh, make a distinction between the two. Peter Qualia joins us. Peter, you're a, a pro-Trump Republican. Uh, what's your feeling on what's been happening over the last 10 days? Well, in terms of in terms of uh, the United States position, I uh, agree with Eric uh, uh, Cohen. I think that uh, the United States should absolutely support Israel. I think that in this uh, instance, uh, even though generally speaking, I would say, uh, you know, I, I would like to see uh, nations fund their own military. But in, in this particular case, let's not forget that Americans were taken hostage, which is an act of war against the United States. So I would actually uh, support some uh, very limited engagement in terms of an air cap, air cover, you know, if Iran, Iran was to come into the fight or something like that. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I definitely agree that, you know, we we stand with Israel 100 percent. Let's talk more about the hostages. Josh, you brought that up in the first hour. But again, to what extent do they complicate uh, Israel's ability to respond? Because uh, it's going to be pretty hard to say that they want to go in and, and level Gaza if, it, if, I, if we find out that many of the Americans who are missing or known uh, captive are somehow in, in safe houses somewhere in Gaza. Jo Josh, uh, unmute yourself, Josh, because uh, we're not hearing a word you say. But you look I'm good. Sorry. But you look good on radio. You look good on radio. I'm very, <laughs> I'm very sorry. I, Bruce, I want to respond to just two things Spike said, and then mm -hmm. I'm going to move to your question. First of all, there's very few issues in America that are bipartisan. Israel is one of them. Um, Israel supporters in Congress is about 97 percent right now. Okay, so I think the voters know best. And the U.S. saw fit to spend $1 trillion in an effort to turn Iraq into a democracy. Um, and uh, that that failed. Um, the $3 billion that Israel gets, which is already an existing democracy and provides the U.S. valuable um, assistance and backing, and intelligence and the like is is super super worth it in terms of um, apparently it wasn't super worth it because uh what happened was uh hamas was able to with uh, roughly seven hours of no response whatsoever hamas was able to casually stroll into israel which we were told thanks to the tens of billions of dollars of taxpayer money we've given them was making israel the most secure country on earth where you couldn't even shoot a bottle rocket at it without them knowing where it was knowing where it would land and knowing whether or not to take it out thousands of hamas terrorists were able to cross into israel seemingly casually and be able to casually murder civilians and take hostages including american hostages as has been pointed out over the course of seven hours and if you go even before that over the past 30 years israel has helped to fund hamas both directly starting in the 1970s and then indirectly starting in the 2010s when they put increasing political pressure on neighboring Arab states to continue funding Hamas when those Arab states didn't want to do so anymore. So if you want to say that the tens of billions of dollars we've spent have uh, have been laid out well, apparently not, because Israel was right. not able to stop let's a, let, a relative hey, handful of people from let, coming let, in let, and let, casually murdering right, Hang on. Let's let Josh respond. I, I got to respond. Josh, go ahead. Yes, you do. Okay. Okay, first of all, Israel has never advocated supporting and funding Hamas. They want to get funds into the Gazan citizens to alleviate their suffering. And that is the moral and humanitarian thing to do. The second thing to you know, I didn't interrupt you. So please don't interrupt That's me because you're just spouting garbage right now. Okay. 
No, everything I've said is factual. Let's let Josh respond. Israel has not funded Hamas. That's not factual. And the second point is Israel has faced threats on a multi-daily basis ever since it was born 75 years ago. There are going to be intelligence and security failures. And I agree with you. This is a big one. And there should be a reckoning coming to figure out what happened here. But now is not the time for that. Now is not the time to question this relatively small amount of USAID that has produced great intelligence that has kept Israel's citizens safe in a very bad neighborhood with enemies surrounding it that want to destroy it over the years. And to use this as one example to uh, try to convince okay. folks out there. I want to go, let me interrupt. I, I, want to, I want to go to Eric Cohen because I want to talk about uh, pu- public support. Uh, obviously, we've seen this past week, we've seen instances in several cities where hundreds of thousands of people, uh, pro-Palestinian demonstrations have taken place. Do you think that we are, with that type of support that's out there uh, for uh, the Palestinians, do you think we're dealing with any sort of internal uh, internal security threat from uh, those that support uh, the Palestinians? Eric? From those who support the Palestinian citizens, no. I mean, I think there are certainly plenty of disturbing things that we heard and that we saw over yep. the weekend for people who were uh, vocalizing support for Hamas, saying that this is all Israel's fault, right. uh, that all violence that was perpetrated against them was uh, basically their, uh, you know, g- getting their just due. Um, I I think what we saw in major cities, what we have seen on college campuses is alarming. Um, It is anti-Semitism. It is rearing its ugly head on the left. We've watched over the last uh, eight to ten years as it increasingly reared its ugly head on the right. Uh, Horseshoe theory does seem to be a real thing, at least when it comes to something like anti-Semitism. And I want people to be serious when they say something like never again. Every time we talk about the Holocaust, every time we talk about what happened in the 20th century, we say never again. And we're looking at these kinds of things happening again, Stars of David in uh, in Germany and in London. It, it's frightening and should be dealt with seriously. Okay. When we come back, I want to hear from Peter Qualia and others to talk about uh, how fearful we should be about the southern border and who's coming in from that southern border around the world and, and do any of them fit into the desire to create havoc and terrorism in the United States. I'm Bruce Dumont. Don't go away. Bruce Dumont back. We continue with Beyond the Beltway. And Peter Qualia, who uh, joins us this evening, uh, has been for 38 years involved in federal law enforcement, working with a variety of agencies, uh, including uh, Border Patrol and also uh, uh, Customs in New York and also with NCIS for a period of time. So, uh, Peter, when you when you talk to your friends and neighbors and former colleagues who are or still involved in protecting the United States uh, through border enforcement, uh, how concerned are they about the possibility that terrorists from around the world have snuck into the United States during this uh, massive influx of immigrants? Just to correct the record, Bruce, that's 30 years in federal law enforcement. What did I say? 38? Uh, you said 38. I'm 38. sorry. I know right. I might look like I'm that old. But no, I'm you don't. The hat, the hat is what's uh, confusing us. Go ahead. In any case, the the uh, yes, I mean, there's tremendous concern about uh, who might have uh, snuck into the United States basically over the last 
three years specifically because our borders are extremely porous. I mean, for those that don't realize it, you know, there were there are two aspects to U.S. Customs and Border Protection. One is uh, Customs and Border Protection officers, which man the gates, the actual legitimate ports of entry. The second part of it is the Border Patrol, which mans the places between the ports of entry where there should be a wall, but in many places there aren't. And uh, just over the last two years, from October of 2021 through October of 2023, uh, tens of thousands of uh, special interest illegal aliens, which are illegal aliens from uh, countries that we have an interest in because they harbor terrorists, uh, have been apprehended. And those are only the ones that have been apprehended. So God only knows how many have snuck in. And that's you know, we, we tend to concentrate on the southern border, which is uh, roughly 2,000 linear miles, but the northern border is roughly twice that size and is quite a bit more porous because there's quite, there's much, much fewer, much less manpower there. Spike so, Cohen. People uh, are walking uh, across the border every day. We don't know who they are. I want to go to Spike Cohen. Spike, uh, you're a libertarian. What is your concern and how should we protect ourselves against the possibility of infiltration? from foreign terrorists who are using uh, our southern border and perhaps even our northern border to bring into the United States uh, small groups of people who could create uh, havoc uh, in our cities. Yeah, so I think we need to spot the pattern so that we can stop it. And the pattern has been this. Uh, Republicans advocate for foreign wars largely against South Asian and Muslim populations. Uh, those Muslims and South Asians go into uh, the Western world, into the U.S. and into Europe to escape. Among them often are, are terrorist groups. Uh, Democrats advocate for us to let in all of the refugees, which not only leads to potential risk of terrorism, but also leads to an expansion of the welfare state. Republicans use that as, an, as a reason for why we need to expand the surveillance and police state to address the uh, the alien problem, and then Democrats use that surveillance and so what's intelligence the, what's and, the, and law what's enforcement the libertarian state to answer oppress to the rest of us. What's the libertarian answer to The libertarian that? answer to it is to stop creating the discord that leads to them coming here in the first place. And I'd like to address two things that were said before. Surely. One was that now is not the time to talk about it. There is no better time to talk about this than during the crisis when we are being told that we should be giving tens of billions of dollars in military aid to Israel. During the COVID lockdowns, we were told now is not the time to talk about the wisdom of the lockdowns. During the invasion and occupation of Iraq, we were told now is not the time to talk about the wisdom of the invasion and occupation of Iraq. And yet again, in this crisis, we're told now is not the time to talk about it. Of course, we should be talking about it. And I'd like to be uh, address the factual uh, implication that I made that Israel helped to create Hamas. Starting in 1979, the Israeli government gave a budget to uh, 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 Yitzhak Segev, who was the uh, military governor of Gaza at the time when the Israelis had control of Gaza, and he was told to create a, he was given a budget to create a religious counterweight to the PLO and Fatah under Yasser Arafat. He found Sheikh Yassin Ahmed, who was the, uh, who was in charge of the Muslim Brotherhood in Gaza. They authorized him as a charity, started giving him money, while at the same time banning participation in the PLO and other secularist Palestinian groups, thereby helping to grow Hamas. At okay. that time, Avner Cohen and other Israeli officials were screaming from the rooftops at any Israeli government official who would listen okay. that this was a terrible idea that was leading to the creation of a religious terrorist group. And for thirty, or for the better part of 30 years, they were ignored. Even after they What's stopped uh, giving direct funding to Hamas Spike, let me, the let me, 1990s, let me, let me jump they continued in. pushing let, let, the Arab Spike, governments to Spike, give them funding let, let, me, let, let me jump in. 
I invited you on the program to make your point, but again, this is a dialogue, a controversy, a conversation that we have here. So I want to go back to Josh. I want I want our other guests to weigh in on what you have just said, and we'll start with uh, Josh, Fair who enough. I think is obviously uh, uh, challenges a lot of what you say, Josh. So to the extent that Spike is saying that Israel um, somehow supports Hamas, that is just absolutely crazy. Israel w turned over Gaza in 2005 to the Palestinian Authority, and then the Gazan people voted in Hamas two years later. Israel was shocked by that development and has been battling and defending itself from rocket attacks and terrorist attacks coming from Hamas and Gaza for the last 18 years. So let's just get back I have no what happened in 1979, but let's get back to kind of the present day and the present situation. And as Spike said, talk about what's going on now. Look, there is no appetite in the U.S. across the mainstream political spectrum to cut aid to Israel. There is a lot of appetite to increase it at this time of our ally in need. It is not much money, $3 billion compared to what, what else we we spend, we've given Ukraine and other countries. So, you know, I don't know if what Mr. Cohen is, is advocating is that the U.S. just retreat from the world and go back to the isolationist sentiment in the 19, late 30s, early 40s. I have no idea, but that is just not what most Americans are voting I for. I want to go to Eric Cohen to weigh in on what you've heard thus far, Eric, on the issue of uh, the, uh, the accuracy of some of the things that Spike Cohen has said. Uh, do you acknowledge those, or, or should, should, should each of those points be uh, uh, further exploration by American media to find out whether there's truth to that? Yeah, I, I suppose the latter there. I'm not um, an expert on these things. I'm not a historian of uh, Israel or of uh, Palestine or of the Middle East in that sense, so I'm not going to weigh in on the factual orientation of what uh, of what Spike has said. Peter Qualia, your, re your response. And Peter, let, let me ask you again, from, from your, maybe not your professional friends and neighbors, but I mean, those literally who are your neighbors, what are they saying about uh, this, uh, this tragedy in, uh, in Israel and, and Gaza? Any reaction from them? Generally speaking, uh, uh, people of my own age, my own friend group, my colleague group are 100% in Israel's corner. Everybody believes this was an absolutely barbaric act. Everybody uh, everybody that I speak to uh, is quite frankly astounded that there are so many uh, people in the younger generation that are, are voicing such out, uh, you know, outspoken support for Palestine. Uh, this is, uh, I mean, this is barbarism, pure and simple. I mean, if, if they had attacked a military target, it might have had a, a very thin veneer of legitimacy, but it, it, it's, it's, it's absolute barbarism. And, and I don't understand how anybody could support it. Now, it's Peter, uh, Peter, uh, criticism of President uh, Trump 
uh, former President Trump has come this past week because he basically went public and w- was critical of Bibi Netanyahu and specifically how they how they blew it, basically how he was asleep at the switch uh, with the, because of the intelligence failures. Uh, he's taken some heat for that, but he's used to taking heat from virtually anything he says. But uh, what is your reaction to what President Trump had to say about uh, criticizing at least Israel, at least now, whether that's a good time to do it? Well, I mean, you know, timing uh, as uh, those questions are going to have to be asked at some point, uh, whether now is the appropriate time to do so or not is is uh, questionable. But I think, uh, listen, the, 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 Israel never had a better friend than Donald Trump. And I'm confident that in his next administration, the same will be true. So I, I, I'm, I'm confident the prime minister of Israel is uh, happy with Donald Trump and not taking issue with anything that he said. But at some point, I would find that hard to believe. I would yeah. I personally just, I mean, I don't know B.B. Netanyahu, but I think I know a lot about Donald Trump. And I don't think he would respond the same way if uh, if some uh, foreign leader made, made some comment about him because he doesn't he doesn't forget a thing. Listen, gentlemen, we have callers on the line. We've raised some issues and hackles, perhaps. Uh, ben in El Paso, Texas, joins us, listening to us to, on KTSM. Go ahead, the uh, on your other there, Ben. Yeah, there was an article, a uh, Reuters article on Business Insider today that said the CIA issued two reports warning the Biden administration of increased Hamas threats days before the attack. And they also said that neither Joe Biden nor other senior White House officials were briefed on those reports. My understanding in the past was the president and White House officials have daily intelligence briefings. Mm -hmm. How was it that Biden, the Biden administration, was not made aware of this? Well, who do we believe? We believe the CIA. but, But that's that's if this report is accurate. Okay, I want to stress that. Is this report accurate? And, and again, in, in reality, uh, this is one of the confusing things we have in the world these days because you hear something and something is repeated and, it's over, and it becomes part of a general narrative and you don't know the original source of some of these things. Now, the Business Insider may be absolutely correct, but we don't know that positively right now. And uh, Eric Cohn, do you have anything to further add to this? No, I, I again, I hadn't seen that uh, that article. I mean, it it, it, it is something that uh, journalists doing their job should probably ask the White House press secretary about. That probably would be a good thing tomorrow at the press briefing to ask about. Well, I'll bet that Peter Ducey will try to ask that question, and he will be ignored. <laughs> uh, I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight. We have another full hour, a full half hour to go. One eight hundred seven two three eighty twenty nine. Good, dispirited guests this evening. We will hear from them when we roll on. 1-800-723-8289. Give us a call. back on Beyond the Beltway. We continue with our guests and uh, a couple of things this past week in the world of politics above and beyond what happened uh, in the Middle East. Obviously, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. 
uh, decided that he was going to leave the Democratic Party and will seek the presidency as an independent. That was a big speech he gave in Philadelphia, and then uh, all hell broke loose in the Middle East, so he didn't get much coverage on that. And secondarily, uh, the United States is still in search of a Speaker of the House. Now that uh, Speaker McCarthy has been dumped uh, by eight members of the uh, House caucus, uh, the Republicans are still looking for someone to lead them. So, Peter Qualley, I want to ask you, first of all, because uh, uh, you and I communicated uh, during the Robert Kennedy announcement, and again, you're, you're for Donald Trump, but uh, Robert Kennedy is a very close second for you. That's, That's correct? He is, but I, I, you are correct. But I've come to uh, believe that, that his entrance into the race uh, as a, an independent is really going to help Trump. Uh, much more significantly uh, than it's going to hurt. I think that, uh, you know, Trump's 40% is absolutely solid. I mean, there's nothing that's going to move those people. Uh, Kennedy will take from both sides, but I think he's going to take way more from the Democrats than he is from Donald Trump because his 40% is solid. And I think ultimately uh, his entrance into the race, uh, you know, there was a poll out by uh, Newsweek and Rasmussen, I think, that said if the current trend holds, the Republicans are going to get 512 electoral, electoral votes. And I think it's very compelling. So I actually, I like Kennedy. I think he's got, uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot that he says I agree with, not 100%, but ultimately I think it's going to ensure a Trump victory. Eric Cohn joins us. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, you uh, were not a big fan of Robert Kennedy's, and I don't think you are now, but uh, still not from, from, a, from a political <laughs> sense, uh, does Peter have uh, something uh, worth exploring? I think he's right to a certain extent. I don't think that for the people who are committed to Donald Trump, uh, that the hard part of his base, they're going to be moved off by anybody. But the problem for Donald Trump is that if he's going to uh, win in 2024, uh, as opposed to losing like he did in 2020, he is going to have to get some of the people who did not vote for him in 2020 to vote for him in 2024. Uh, some of those people, if they are not pleased with Donald Trump and they uh, are also not pleased with Joe Biden, considering that this is likely to be a matchup of two of the most disliked presidential candidates in American history, people may be looking for a place to park their vote. So it's the soft Republican support, the people who might have gone for Donald Trump, who may be looking for somewhere else to go. Whereas Trump is a galvanizing force for the left. So I don't think there are going to be a lot of Democrats or Democrat leaners out there who are going to say, ah, I'm just going to take a flyer on this third party guy. So I still think overall it's not a good thing for Trump, but it's probably being oversold and that he's going to pull all of this hard support away from Trump. I, I just don't think that's the case. What opportunities does this provide to the libertarian, whoever that might be in 2024, uh, Spike? Well, I think if nothing else, it'll help to highlight the the um, systems that are put in place by the Republican and Democrat establishments to make it almost impossible for a third party candidate to effectively run, whether we're talking about their their lock on the Commission on Presidential Debates, whether we're talking about the fight that third party candidates have to even get on the ballot in the first place, the hundreds of thousands of signatures they have to get across the country, the millions or tens of million dollars in fees that they have to spend in courts to fight to get their candidates on the ballot, while at the same time, Republicans and Democrats get taxpayer funding for their primaries, their candidates and their campaigns and so forth. So if nothing else, he'll help highlight that. I mean, I personally agree with uh, Kennedy when it comes to things like medical tyranny and free speech. Uh, I'd say on most things, I probably disagree with him. But at the very least, he's going to highlight just how difficult it is to run for just about anything if you're not a Republican. If he came to the Libertarian Party and said, uh, I want your place on the ballot, I want your support, 
and that independent candidacy became a libertarian candidacy, uh, would you support that? Would you put your own presidential aspirations on the side, believing that he might be a stronger candidate? The libertarian candidate for president needs to be a libertarian through and through. They need to hold the banner. They need to be the main banner carrier for not just the libertarian party, but the libertarian belief system, what we believe in terms of how the government should interact with the people. RFK is not that. RFK, we agree with him on quite a few things. Uh, I think it's great that he's running. I think that the American people need to have so many different choices to choose from. I think it's absurd that in a nation as big as ours, we're basically told we have two choices and we have to pick from them uh, and we get diminishing uh, returns as a result of that. But RFK is not a libertarian, I, and I don't think he'd claim to be a libertarian. Josh uh, certainly believes that uh, there's, there should be options as well. Uh, over the last uh, several months on this program, he has said that he's for Nikki Haley. Recent polls suggest that she's on the rise. In fact, uh, she's been leading Joe Biden um, uh, by a wider margin than some of the other Republican uh, candidates that are out there. So uh, how do you move Nikki Haley from where she is to where she wants to be, Josh? She's moving in the right direction. What she's done in the debates has galvanized support. And she is now running ahead of DeSantis in a number of key states. So I'm very pleased with how things are going for Nikki Haley. I, sh I share, I, I agree with Eric that Robert Kennedy Jr. is, is going to probably take more support from Trump than, than Biden. Um, I, I see there, there's overlapping positions there, but I think that as Trump supporters learn that, <laughs> Look, Robert Kennedy Jr., he, he was right about the lockdowns, that we shouldn't have had these draconian lockdowns. He may be right about certain free speech issues, but he is a leftist on the social justice issues and the like. That They're not going to, the more they find out about him, Peter, I, I see you nodding. I just think that they're not going to like what, what they find out. About Go ahead, Peter. Peter. My, my, uh, my uh, position on Kennedy, as uh, Bruce well knows, is that I would have preferred him to any of the other Republican establishmentarians. I mean, I'm a Trump supporter through and through. I'm not particularly fond of Nikki Haley, but I understand what his shortcomings are. I, I uh, you know, I take him at his word with certain things like the, his position on the Second Amendment and his position on the Tenth Amendment. But I, you know, I could be mistaken, but I think it, I really don't think it matters. I mean, at this point, he's he's not going to get the nomination. Uh, Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. And uh, it remains to be seen whether or not Biden gets shanked at the convention or, you know, they let him run. But, uh, you know, and again, with very respectfully, uh, Eric and I have a difference of opinion about whether or not uh, uh, it's just a matter of votes or the person who counts the votes or how we vote, uh, you know, and what happened in 2020. So I, I think that if they tighten up the election system, which I'm hoping that they're going to do, I think that if more of the Republican voters bank their vote before the election, I think there's going to be uh, a tremendous turnout with Donald Trump. What is it? about Nikki Haley that you don't like? Personally, I think I, I, I think she's, uh, you know, she Nikki Haley was uh, was uh, extremely critical of Trump when she ran against him for the nomination the first time. She then kissed up to him basically to get a, a plum position. And the minute she left that position, she, you know, started knifing on the back again. I just don't think she's loyal. I think she's all an opportunist and a panderer. It's all the politics of the personal. It's just so. I'm, it is I'm so from South Carolina. Go ahead. 
uh, I, I live in South Carolina like, where Nikki Haley was governor. Uh, she came in in 2010 promising that she was going to cut spending, cut pork spending, cut taxes. She was going to rein in government. Uh, she was going to introduce a permitless carry, constitutional carry, and a host of other things. She did absolutely none of those things. That was the last I ever wanted to hear. She's an establishmentarian. Yeah, Nick, Nikki is someone who most South Carolinians um, liked because they reelected her. And then she left to become the ambassador to the UN. She's got the foreign policy chops plus the domestic executive experience. And I just think she'd be a great candidate. But she's not, not beating, she's not beating, point. she's not beating Trump now in South Carolina. And, ne and neither, been, and neither is Scott. Single, there hasn't been a single vote cast unless I missed it no. in Republican primaries yet. So there's a lot that can happen. There's a lot that will develop. And yeah. I think Nikki Haley, and I'll mark my words, I believe that I'm going to be proven right that Nikki Haley is going to be battling Trump for this uh, nomination. Okay. Eric Cohn, to yeah, the you. Big, the biggest problem. Go ahead. The biggest problem that Nikki Haley is going to have is less Donald Trump at this point. It is everybody else who is in that race. The concern from a Republican perspective, if you do not want Donald Trump to be the nominee, was never how many people were going to get into the race. It was when they were going to get out of it. And the problem is we are now in mid-October and it still doesn't look like anybody's getting out of it. Uh, Chris Christie had announced a pretty decent fundraising that he is dumping all into New Hampshire, which is going to make the state that Trump is currently polling the weakest in harder for anybody uh, other than Trump to win. So it, it is still just a mess. You still have the same collective action problem that existed for Republicans in 2016 from the perspective of someone who doesn't want Trump to be the nominee. Mm -hmm. So uh, with all due respect, no matter what you think of Nikki Haley as a person or as a politician, the problem is there are eight other people in that race who are sucking up time and money and oxygen. And unless they get out, she is not going to be moving anywhere close to Donald Trump and he's going to get the nomination again. Well, there's been some pressure yeah, on Senator Scott tonight. to get out of the race as well. Yeah, but I, but Bruce and, and Eric, respect. I, I agree with some of what you said. I just think that it's October right now, and maybe after one or two primaries, you are going to see a consolidation of the field and people getting out. And at that point, I don't think it's too late. I mean, yeah, I think it's too late. Ninety. Well, we have a well, we have a disagreement. That's for Nikki Haley to figure out. But again, at least in the debates, she's she's done well. The question is, uh, how many people are really watching those debates, and are there are, there, are their positions changing? Uh, and again, she's she certainly seems to be focusing her attention on Ramaswamy. That's that is her sort of uh, you know pinata that she likes to beat up on in the in the debates. But the, uh, uh, we'll the decline it, that you saw in the total number of viewers from the first debate to the second debate yep. suggests that amongst Republican primary voters. There aren't that many people who are shopping for somebody else. Right. So unless it is going to quickly narrow to a two-person race, and it is going to be this person or that person, very clearly, right. nobody else is going to stand a chance. Trump is still 30-some, 40-some points ahead. Right, and we're not going to see any likely shift in that, uh, at least until some of the trials begin to start. Uh, that may peel away from votes, but people have been waiting for peeling votes away from Donald Trump for a long time, and they're still waiting. I'm Bruce Dumont. Don't go away. Another segment coming up. Don't touch that dial.
Bruce Dumont back. We continue with Beyond the Beltway. And uh, in earlier in the broadcast, our Republican Josh Cantrow said that although he has been critical of President Biden in the past, he thought that his uh, speeches to the nation uh, this week uh, were pretty good. He gave them very high grades for the for the passion that he brought, especially uh, when I think he was addressing the uh, religious leaders, the the the, the Jewish leaders uh, in the country at a very passionate passionate speech uh, at the White House. Uh, I want to get reaction from the other guests as to uh, whether whether they would give the president any uh, good marks for. Uh, what was said uh, last week. And I'm going to begin with you, uh, Spike Cohen. Yeah, I'm not sure the last time I've ever given Joe Biden good marks on anything, um, and certainly not on this. As I said before, I think that uh, us continuing this ruinous U.S. interventionist policy around the world uh, has led to the massive out-of-control, or been a major contributor to the massive out-of-control spending that we have here, which directly relates to actual Americans' number one concern, which is the cost of living crisis, which is directly caused by overspending and debt spending and the Federal Reserve having to print out currency in order to finance it. Uh, and okay. so anything that isn't saying that, you know, this policy has failed and we're going to start doing what the founders intended uh, is going to fall on deaf okay, ears. Okay, so obviously uh, because he didn't spout the libertarian line, you're not going to give him a good grade. Uh, Eric Cohn, you've been very critical of the White House as well. Uh, your reaction? It was uh, a little disconcerting that it took him as long to address what was happening in Israel as he did. And uh, the uh, story that he was having some kind of a barbecue at the White House and God, don't want to interrupt that for a crisis in the Middle East. Um, the rhetoric overall, I think, has been perfectly fine. Uh, it's, you know, what is going to happen in uh, the following days and weeks is going to be the question for him. But in terms of making a strong state and in support of the state of Israel, I mean, yes, he did. He did a good job on that front. Peter, your reaction? I'm absolutely certain that he has absolutely no idea what's going on in the state of Israel. Someone from his staff wrote <laughs> something that would probably be graded as barely acceptable. As a uh, as a Pennsylvanian, I'm really embarrassed because now the two presidents from Pennsylvania in this nation's history are, are, are both the worst. So I can't imagine that we're going to have another chance anytime soon. But again, do you, I mean, can can you? Can you objectively listen to any of those speeches and say, you know what, um, I thought he gave a good speech. And by the way, I will say that. And I've been very critical of Joe Biden in the past. Do, do you think but that I he think, wrote the I think, speech? You know what, I don't care whether he wrote the speech. You know why? Almost no I, president just one second, writes their own I didn't think I mean, Ronald Reagan wrote his speeches. But you know what, he delivered it well. He delivered with a sense of passion. Now, again, he didn't he didn't take a libertarian position as Spike would like him to do and as he would like to do if he became president. But my question is, I, I was watching it, you know, on Fox News and it was just like it was like nobody gave him a break. I mean, you know, Fox News will they'll say, well, he was too late. Well, you know, they will debate whether or not it should have been quicker. But I don't know whether had he delivered that speech you know, within, you know, 12 hours after the attack, whether it would have been as effective as it was later on, several days later, when he was delivering it uh, before a group of, of Jewish leaders who had, who had come to the White House. And by the way, one of those leaders made a very, uh, a very important comment, and that was he thanked Joe Biden for inviting the group to the White House to have this discussion. And he reminded the president and those listening that President Roosevelt 
turned away a group of religious leaders in the Second World War who wanted to bring the attention of what was happening uh, with the Holocaust to him, and he denied it. He denied them entry to the White House. So by giving this historical you know, shiv to President FDR, which, again, most Democrats overlook, I mean, he was basically saying to Biden, you know, we appreciate not only what you're saying, but the passion with which you were saying it. And by the way, I, I, can, I can acknowledge that he had a really good day and it was a really good speech, and yet I can be, you know, offended when, when he trips up the stairs or does some of these other things or malapropisms that, that are part of his demo. I can, I, can, I can be as critical as Joe Biden as, as anyone else, but again, when the guy has a good day or a good speech, it should be more than about, well, who wrote it for him? I mean, it's just yeah, like, and I, acknowledge it, you know? Bruce, he had a good day. Bruce, I, I agree with that. I mean, look, I'm critical of him, but if we're going to have any credibility, we just, we got to give him credit where credit is due. And on the timing of the speech, I think it was just fine. He gave it within a few days after these attacks. Everything he said was exactly right, and he delivered it with, with as much passion as Joe Biden can. Now, that doesn't mean that he won't be, you know, uh, criticized if he starts to tell Israel to tone it down too early before they defeat Hamas. Right. He will be. And I think that 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 those of us who criticize him, if he does that, will have more credibility if we've been praiseworthy right. in the past. You know, from my Facebook I post, um, I, people went crazy on me, the, uh, my conservative friends, who thought, you know, you can't give this guy praise for anything. And I just think that is the wrong way to do things. I agree with it. Eric Cohn, do you uh, acknowledge any of that? It's true? No, I, 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 I think our responsibility as citizens is to say the things that we believe to be true. And if uh, it happens that a politician of a party that I don't care for, and frankly not being a big fan of either of the uh, two major political parties, find myself in that boat pretty often, um, says something that I agree with, I'm perfectly willing to acknowledge it, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat. There are things Donald Trump has said, oh, I have absolutely just do not care for Donald Trump at all that he has said that I are correct and that I agree with. I, I just think we would all be better off if we could make those kinds of acknowledgements without the weight of thinking that it has to mean that we accept the person in totality or their right. political platform in totality. These, these things do not have to come along with it. You yeah. can make these fine distinctions. Yeah. And you've got, and you've got to go beyond talking points, which is again, which I was offended by uh, with the comments by the Fox commentators earlier this week. On that note, we are out of time. I want to thank Spike Cohen for joining us. He is a, a vice presidential candidate. Four years ago, he was the vice presidential candidate of the Libertarian Party. He's thinking about running for president. Eric Cohn joins us from the Acton Institute, sits in on this program frequently. Uh, Josh Cantrell, we thank you very much. Always a regular guest on our program. And Peter Qualia joins us. 30 years working in the federal uh, law enforcement and Chris Fury and uh, Professor Syed for earlier in the broadcast. Thanks to Fritz Goldman. Good night from Chicago.